warm welcome to you all. Hope you'll thoroughly enjoy our program. Britannia, the very British podcast about very British movies. We've just merest hint of professionalism somewhere along the way there. Scott here, as usual, with me. It's Stephen. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Matt. How are you? Very well. Just back off a, a lovely two-week holiday in, in sunnier climes. Come back to the tail end of a hurricane and lashing down rain here on a Sunday morning. But it's what, it's what we come to expect. It's fine. Not a problem. How about yourself? Oh, I'm doing well, yeah, I've been keeping busy while you've been away, so I didn't pine too much. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not as if we didn't have any content to put out, because I was just looking down the list of, of where we are in episodes. Um, to give the listener some idea, we're recording Sunday the 6th of October, this episode. By my reckoning, I think this probably is not going to go out until mid to late November. <laughs> <laughs> My, is, that, is, is that november 2020 I, I know we've also got to think about a christmas episode as well so depending on when that one gets put out this could be the first episode of the new year i really don't know <laughs> yeah yeah but i'd rather have that buffer of episodes than us sort of you know chasing to get things out week in week out you know i like the idea that we've got a few here that we can just you know rattle off i could t- i could take a week off take a week away fly to lanzarote like i did not worry about you uh <laughs> today's a well, good one yeah, sorry better yeah better to be ahead better to be ahead than than um leave the the listeners waiting begging for more as they usually yeah. are yeah that we like to think that today's going to be a cracker because it's the second part of the kitchen sink the british new wave the angry young men series that we've we've dipped our toe into initially with it always rains on sunday and it just it's just an interesting progression as to before we get to what is generally considered the angry young men movies i think this one is paul of london 1951 basil dearden could you see why i selected this as, as part of the the sequence that we're moving into Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's looking at the real life and the gritty everyday life of of Londoners at the time, uh, and it also covers, you know, the the living situations of particularly the the girls yes. that the sailors are visiting, and and the repercussions at the social mores, as well as um, looking at how that fits in with that sort of post-war environment and, and change in attitude so i think it's it does fit in as being a um, a precursor or, or a starting point as well in some ways okay well to highlight it a little bit more and to sort of focus a bit on how we got to hear from it always rains on sunday four years previously 
Let's take a short break. I've put together another one of those little mini documentaries. And there's a few famous faces and films that we have missed out on. But there's a reason for it, and you'll hear that in what's coming up next. We'll see you in just a minute. Before the true dawning of the British New Wave era, there was a trend towards producing what became known as social problem movies. Social problem movies of course existed before this, and they're still being made today. But it's worth taking a look at some of the films distributed around this time, the period between It Always Rains on Sunday and Look Back in Anger 12 years later. Significantly, and similarly to the noir genre of this time in the USA, there were plenty of crime dramas and police procedural films. The same year as It Always Rains on Sunday, 1947, would see the release of one of the most celebrated of the British social problem movies. Went back. That boy. Read what he says there, Spicer. About Collie Kibber. Collie Kibber is the special representative of the Daily Messenger and will be mingling with the holiday crowds at Brighton today. What do you want me to read this for, Cubitt? Are we going prize hunting? Why not? <laughs> Go on. His programme hour by hour will be found below. He will secret his cards all the way along his route and the lucky finders will be able to claim ten shillings from the Daily Messenger. Go on, go on. A prize of ten guineas will be awarded to the first person carrying a copy of the Daily Messenger who challenges him in the following words. You are Colic Kibber and I claim the Daily Messenger prize. Lamp the photograph. Yeah. It's Fred. You bet it is. This will be as good as a dash of sauce to Pinky. You won't show him that, will it? What do you think? Now be careful, Della. You know what Pinky is. <laughs> Pinky loved Kite and Kite trusted Fred. And if Fred hadn't written that paragraph about the slot machines, Kite would have been alive now. But you know these newspaper blokes, it's their job to write things. Yeah, listen, Della, let's carve Fred up a bit and then we'll tell Pinky afterwards. Ah, oh, turn it up, Spicer. Things were as Kite wanted them. And Pinky's the leader of this mob now. Brighton Rock, released in 1947, was based on the Graham Greene novel and was directed by John Bolting. It starred Richard Attenborough as the inherently evil teenage thug Pinky Brown. Although made in 47, the action takes place between the wars, where we learn that in Brighton, gang warfare was commonplace, and that the town itself was described as being full of dark alleyways and festering slums. A marvellous movie that shows the contrast between the happy, sunshine-filled lives of the beach-going holidaymakers and the sinister, razor-wielding thugs that lurk in the shadows. Graham Greene co-wrote the script with playwright Terence Rattigan and on its release it was seen as genuinely shocking. So much so that the British Board of Film Censors intervened and the film's ending was changed. Another movie that felt the guiding hand of the film censor on its shoulder was Good Time Girl, released the following year in 1948. With an all-star British cast including Dennis Price, Flora Robson, Herbert Lom and Diana Dawes in her movie debut, it tells the story of teenage runaway played by Jean Kent who finds herself on the road to perdition after getting involved with some dodgy sorts and some criminal activity. Sentenced to three years at an approved school, she plays the system for her own ends. 
but eventually returns to her old ways with tragic consequences. Here, Gwen Rawlings, played by Jean Kent, first meets Rosso the Spiv. BBFC at the time would generally frown upon certain aspects of the social problem genre, such as what they perceived as criticism of established institutions. And so, when first released, the approved school scenes were heavily cut. But in 1951, following a report by the Weir Committee, they started to take artistic merit and social context into account when making their decisions when assessing movies. It was also around this time that the X certificate was introduced. This effectively restricted cinema admission to those over 16, but more importantly, it gave filmmakers a lot more freedom when it came to bringing adult-oriented subjects to the screen. Another movie, released the following year, would also take place in what the BBFC considered an established institution. Set in a Borstal, whose governor is played by the ever-reliable Jack Warner, he finds his free-thinking nature challenged by financial restrictions and the refusal of some of the teenage inmates. A true lesson in social realism, the film also again features Richard Attenborough, who in a bid to escape from the poverty that he shares with his widowed mother, he takes part in a robbery which sees him sentenced to three years. Arriving at the Borstal, he meets a tough crowd, led most notably by a sneering performance from Dirk Bogart, and discovered that things are actually much tougher on the inside. What are you doing here, Rowling? Oh, Mr Knight told me to polish the floors, sir. Oh, which are the empty beds in here? There's only one, sir, that one there. Right, uh, Knowles, you'll be here. Yes. Now, you're responsible for the tightness of your own bed and locker. If you've got a photograph of anybody, you can put it up by the side of your bed. And there are the rules. I'll be seeing the governor soon, so wait here till you're sent for. Sir. 
Right, come along, you three. I'm putting you next door. Come on. What's your name? Jackie Knowles. What you in here for? Well, first up, I borrowed a bike. Borrowed one? Well, you know. Oh, yes, I know. And they sent you up here for that? No, no, no that was an old up by here. I got in with a bad lot. Got in with a bad lot, eh? Yeah. Got a good home, I suppose? Yes. Father? No. Mom? Yes, Mother. She'll miss you. There's a pity. She'll be lonely. What, uh, what happens here? I mean, what time do you get up? Oh, 5.40, winter or summer. First of all, you drill for half an hour to show you're not frozen. Then you go to chapel for another half hour to give thanks for the exercise. Then you're free to start your work. What sort of work? Oh, scrubbing floors and emptying slops the first month. After that, you go to the workshops, if you're lucky. But it isn't the work that gets you down. What is it, then? The nights, mostly. Going to bed in winter and summer at 8.30. The sun's shining. You're lying in bed and you can see it shining on the wall. And you keep on watching the sun because... Well, you've got nothing else to do. Maybe you hear somebody laughing outside and... You know, they're free. They're walking, talking, maybe having a smoke. Thinking of what they'll do next. That's what breaks your heart. I see. Of course, if you have a pal, it makes it a bit easier. I could look after you. Thanks, sir. I think I better look after myself. Jack Warner and Dirk Bogard would reunite two months later for what is generally regarded as the most famous of all British police films, The Blue Lamp, directed by Basil Dearden. To modern day audiences, this movie may appear a little old fashioned and charming in a way, but at the time of release, it had a huge impact thanks mainly to Bogart's performance as what the movie described as a new breed of thug. A violent young criminal rejected not only by society, but also by the established criminal underworld for being too reckless and too unpredictable. The movie is a perfect example of the progression that the social problem movie was taking. Where Brighton Rock a couple of years earlier was grim, biting and gritty, the Blue Lamp dared to take things to the next level and shocked audiences when Dirt Bogart shoots and kills PC George Dixon, played by Jack Warner, about halfway through the film. This was undoubtedly the movie that launched the career of Dirk Bogart. But so popular was the character of PC George Dixon that he was actually revived, so to speak, and Jack Warner would continue playing him on TV for over 20 years in Dixon of Dot Green. George, before you go, let these Bow Street boys hear that song of yours. Listen to this, Daff. Now you're on the point and you swivel your eyes onto a passing bride. A bus, a tram and two bicycles with a horse and can't collide. An obelisk is overturned, the superscar is wrecked. But you pick him up and you dust him down and you tell him, all correct. Oh, you pick him up and you dust him down and you tell him, all correct. 
dust him down, you tell him all correct. Now Watermain has started the flood, the guestworks are on fire, the nick is like a bath of blood, they massacred the choir. Now then, come along, back on your beach, late turn. Dixon, you're what stopped? On my way, Sarge. We won. Yeah, good thing you did, or there'd have been some reports to write out. Oh, Mitchell. Sergeant. This is Waterborne. Yes, we have your dog here. He's just been brought in. Take that flea bitten half rug out of the yard and tie it up. Very good, Sergeant. Yes, madam, he's a beauty. Dog taking you for a walk, Andy? Yes. Yes, Mrs. By 1951, Basil Dearden was making quite a name for himself as an accomplished and inventive director. He'd already been in charge of several Will Hay movies, two segments of the classic British portmanteau chiller Dead of Night, Saraband for Dead Lovers starring Stuart Granger, Joan Greenwood and Flora Robson, and as well as social dramas Frieda in 1947 and the classic The Blue Lamp in 1950. But in 1951, he directed yet another classic pre-New Wave drama, which was groundbreaking in its focus on an interracial relationship and presented Earl Cameron, the young black actor born in Bermuda, with a remarkable opportunity to become part of film history. Pool of London was released three years after Windrush arrived at Tilbury Docks, and Earl Cameron is remarkable here with his performance as Johnny Lambert. A shy, sensitive outsider, he's a merchant seaman whose shipmate Dan MacDonald, played by Bonacoliano, has a lucrative sideline smuggling black market goods ashore. While stocked in London, the pair get involved with a gang of hard-nosed jewel thieves who hire MacDonald to smuggle their loot out of the country. The things start to go wrong when Johnny falls for the charms of the dangerous young woman called Pat, played by Susan Shaw, and is charged with a murder he didn't commit. A superb, gritty melodrama with superb performances all round. A heist drama with hints of a noir movie, it features the first interracial relationship on British screens and touches on the subjects of not only race, but love, friendship, loneliness and dignity. Here's a brief extract of an interview that Earl Cameron gave to Channel 4 News in 2016 at the grand old age of 99. I was in a terrible show called... 13 Death Street, Harlem, which I hated. And then this film came along. A man named Basil Dearden was about to make a film, Pool of London. He said, okay, Earl, it's a quiet night. It's in London Bridge. Let's try the shot. Action. I said, yes, something like that happened. Earl, the camera's right here. So I said, yeah. Something like this happened the first time I met Danny. He got in a fight because of me. He said, Errol, you got it. That's it. Oh, that's where the colored boy comes in. If you ask me, they're both in it together. Come on, let's walk up to the observatory. We've just got time. And to play the part that you played, and to be in a relationship with a white British woman, that's a, that was a big deal at the time, wasn't it? Because, I mean, we're talking about the early 50s. To me, it was just a natural thing. I mean, she was a girl, not with a man, and so on. But, I, I mean, I did understand, naturally, I'm not stupid. I understood that I'm living in a part of the world where that type of thing, to some degree, is taboo. When you're at the wheel of a ship at night, far at sea, and nothing else to do, you think about a lot of things you don't understand. 
You wonder why one man's born to wait, and another isn't. And how about God himself? What color's he? And the stars seem so close, and the world so small in comparison with all the other worlds above you. It doesn't seem to matter so much how you were born. It doesn't matter. It does, you know. Paul of London, premiered in the UK, 22nd of February 1951, directed, as we say, by Basil Dearden, starring Bona Colino or Bona Colliano, Earl Cameron, Susan Shaw, Moira Lister, Alfie Bass, and several others that we're no doubt going to mention as we go along. The synopsis, very briefly, when their ship docks, the crew disembark as usual to pick up their lives in post-war London. For one of them, his petty smuggling turns more serious when he finds himself caught up with a robbery in the city. Doesn't sound too much like an angry young man kitchen sink drama. What I was hoping to sort of highlight here was before we get to Room at the Top and all of those movies that people associate with the Angry Young Men series, there's this sequence of crime dramas and social commentary, social problem movies, and this is a perfect example of one of those because it's also it's also tackling the subject of racism as well, but in a very subtle way in this movie. And I think this makes a natural progression from It Always Rains on Sunday. You can see where the British cinema new wave movement is, is going to come in at this point. It was your first time watch, wasn't it, I take it? It was, actually, yeah. I know, I've known of it, but I you know, heard the name and things. But mm. you're absolutely right that it, it, it places itself in, in that intermediary period. Yeah. And it, that, as we know, there was a number of other dramas that were done about um, people's brushes with crime. A lot of it was people who were slipping into it, into from something that might be petty crime to suddenly becoming a lot more serious and, and being out of their control. Yeah. And also the people that we were within their sort of immediate orbit that weren't actually involved in any of their petty crimes suddenly being dragged into something more serious as well that they were um, certainly not intending to. And th- that was a, a theme that has gone through a number of other films, as you pointed out. Yeah, we, that, we could have but, included The Blue Lamp. We could have included yeah. Brighton Rock, but <laughs> The Blue Lamp, quite obviously, we haven't included because... <laughs> yeah, because then we'd lose the episode. Um, <laughs> well, I'll say we. Anyway, but um, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And um, Blue Lamp, that's, that's sort of is something that... Um, snowballs the situation as far you know beyond the control of the people who think they're they're in control to begin with, and, and same in Brighton Rocket, similar situation, um, but with other innocents on the periphery who mm. get dragged into this whirlpool, and and this again is something that is 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 in Brighton Rock uh, in um, Pool of London, whereby there's other people getting dragged into this. Um, situation of something going wrong, basically. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I like, somebody's been a chancer. Yeah. Well, I like the fact, as you pointed out, that this sits quite nicely within the, the precursors to the the cinema, the, to the British New Wave cinema, because of the, the focus on the day-to-day life of some of the ordinary people. As you say, the, the living arrangements of the girls, you could quite see that 10 years down the line in a kitchen sink drama. I mean, were they sisters? Were the two girls sisters, or was it a mother-daughter relationship? She didn't look old enough to be her mother. 
No, I, I don't know. I think it's the, it was that kind. I judged it as one of those kind of relationships where they're they're so close. They're basically our sisters, right. but not not technically. But yeah. the you know that's that's the the level at which because you know they're probably grown up together, been at the same school, they end up getting jobs together. You know, it's 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 that kind of of thing. Mm. Um, but absolutely, it's um, you know the focus of the movie had been more upon their from their perspective rather than from the the fellows off the ship yeah um it probably would have been you know more wholeheartedly within the the kitchen sink because yes. it would have been more in it would it would have fit with what how it was done with um always rains on a sunday because that was from the point of view of somebody where the the criminal element is coming into their lives mm-hmm. rather than them being it being a film about the criminal element with these innocents coming in it was different perspective in in that regard Mm-hmm. But still, there was the element there. So yeah, the focus is definitely on the sailors in this yeah. particular movie, and that briefest of synopsis that I read out doesn't really tell you what's going on. But it's it's a typical day to day life over the course of a weekend of two sailors that are docked in the Pool of London, which is this little stretch of of the Thames just by Tower Bridge, and we see the. The bureaucracy that goes on when a ship docks in London with customs coming on board. So we've got an idea that there's some sort of regulation, some sort of, um, as I say, bureaucracy going on to make sure that nothing underhand is happening. Although perhaps the most underhand of all the characters is the superb James Robertson Justice as the captain. <laughs> yeah, with his, with his bottles and his... <laughs> his He's saying how much, you know, he's got one bottle more than he should do, but one of them's already, that's already started is that bottle, so he's trying to convince him not yeah. to count it. Well, how much, how much is in it, he says, and he puts up his fingers and he, he's sort of bringing it down slowly until <laughs> until they actually uh, say yes. That's fine, yes, uh, that's fine, yeah. he'll allow you that. And then it's interesting that they say that the captain has not actually left the ship in 10 years or something, because he hasn't, he hasn't actually set yeah. foot on a dock in 10 years unless he's had to change ship. And and also, just while we're talking about James Robertson Justice, do you remember we had the conversation a few few episodes back about there's this whole element of doubt as to the stories behind James Robertson's Justice? Oh, the legend he created. Yeah. yeah. And this whole thing that, you know, his Scottish heritage and taking on the name Robertson from his father, I think it was, or whatever it was. This is highlighted, you know, the actual veracity of his claims here, the fact that he does a very dodgy Scottish accent <laughs> It's not one hundred percent convincing, I believe. No, you got more more convincing Mike Myers, or um, <laughs> no, uh, or even in in Star Trek with, with Scotty. So. Exactly. Yeah, but yeah, it's great to see James Robertson Justice again. Sort of almost a cameo appearance. Very brief appearance from Leslie Phillips, which yes. is good to see, yeah. and Alfie Bass. Now, yes, if ever you've got a London-based crime drama. I think it was written, you know, in everybody's contract that Alfie Bass had to appear in it at some point. Before we go headfirst into the whole of the sequence of the plot and what's going on in this movie, while we're talking about characters and actors, there's a few Hall of Famers, I believe, or definitely second appearances, and even a fourth. Yeah, there are a few, yeah. Start with Basil Dearden. This is number three for Basil Dearden, I believe. Yes. Um, Man who haunted himself and League of Gentlemen previously. Yeah, absolutely. And and as we've said before, his place as um, a stalwart of British cinema for that era 
and you know it's unfortunate he had a, a tragic death himself mm. to not see where how far he could have gone but he was a linchpin of of this you know early british cinema um establishing it and, and putting quality in there so it's right that we recognize him we don't always as you've said before we don't always recognize directors and producers and no. such like um but he's an exception that deserves a mention and, and recognition well listeners better get used to him because the next two movies in this sort of um examination of the pre-kitchen sink dramas are both basil did and directed the next two uh violent playground and sapphire which we're going to be looking at next are both directed by him so it, it proves how crucial he was in the development as you say of this post-war pre-60s actually going into the 60s as well there's a lot of stuff that he you know was responsible for so the more i'm seeing basil deard and stuff the more i'm loving it i'm, I'm just totally oh absolutely yeah 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 cannot fault it so we've got basil deard and who have you got on your list because i've got a couple that may be well as you, as you say there's a um the most frequently appeared one on the on the list um is the aforementioned alfie bass yes um, who this is by my reckoning this is his fourth appearance I think it is yeah um, previously Brief Encounter Always Rains on a Sunday and Hell Drivers but yep. he's been in so many other things as well that that's only set to increase um, you know this is not the limit of oh, what no. we're going to be seeing of, the, of that man thankfully so um, and as you said James Robertson Justice um, this is his third appearance by my reckoning Scott um, of the Antarctic. Yeah, and Doctor in the House, yep. uh, Scott of the Antarctic. So, yeah. And the other third appearance that I've got down is Susan Shaw. Oh, okay. Yep. Um, Pool of London, obviously, she's in. Um, carry on. Always, rain, always Rains on a Sunday and Carry On Nurse. There we go. Um, there's numerous. There's probably about seven or eight people who are making their second appearance, um, mm-hmm. depending on when this is going to be released yep. and depending on when you're um, releasing the episode with Tony about um, Dunkirk <laughs> yeah. um, if that's already been done at the time of the release of this then this is the third appearance for um, uh, Victor Madden. I was going to say Victor Madden's the bus conductor isn't he because he was a soldier yeah. in yeah. Seven Days to Noon wasn't he? Right because yeah. I was going to mention him because I spotted him straight away now yeah. also uncredited which I think I think he's already in the Hall of Fame. Uncredited. Is this Lawrence, is Lawrence Naismith? Lawrence Naismith is uncredited. Yeah. As is Sam Kidd. Oh, Sam Kidd I didn't spot, no. Yeah. And as one of the sailors on the ship, and I've got to go back and find him, wait for this, Arthur Mullard. Oh, right. <laughs> so he's obviously not in the Hall of Fame, Arthur Mullard, as yet. But no. yeah, yeah, the the... the the famous Arthur Mallard that we know from comedies and, and sitcoms is, is an uncredited sailor on the ship, apparently. But yeah, Sam Kidd was in there as well. Yeah, just these lots of little familiar, as we've said this before, the familiar little backroom boys, the little bit part players that deserve a lot more recognition because the amount of films that they're in, the amount of times they crop up, Sam Kidd is the, is the obvious one, you know, as we've said, and Marianne Stone. Yeah. Marianne Stone's not in this movie. <laughs> no, amazingly. No, you would have expected her to have some cameo in it just because, again, that was contractual that she had to be in everything. Um, but, yes, we've got numerous people who are making the second appearances. Um, it's, uh, Leslie Phillips been the, the most um, well-known second. named on yeah. that. Um, only second for him. Uh, Bono Caliano um, himself, two. a second appearance. Yep. Rini um, Asherson, um, yes. 
previously in Theatre of Blood. So Moira Lister was in Troubling Star. That's it, Normal Wisdom, yep. Michael Golden, it was in Blue Lamp, but we didn't actually yep. record that one. Um, <laughs> John Longdon was in A Matter of Life and Death wow. as well. So, yeah, there's a few. Just, just uh, goes second to appearances, yeah. yeah. So we'll look out for those inductees as and when they they come along. What's quite refreshing, we're looking at a movie that is, what, nearly 70 years old, and amazingly, both Earl Cameron and Leslie Phillips are still with us. It's only really recently that, although I've seen um, Earl Cameron in things um, mm. for, for years, yeah. it's only really within the last couple of years I've, I've actually realised his his place yeah. um, in, in what a, a position he has in movie history as mm. far as um, the films he was in and... Um, how he helped be the face of um, sort of the attitudes towards race in, in British culture, particularly, but oh, also God, in other yeah. things. So, um, absolutely right that he gets more recognition and great that he's still with us and still um, still performing. I believe he is. Yeah, yeah. He was he was in a movie a couple of years back. You know, he's he actively promoted this when the BFI released it a couple of years ago. He took part in all sort of like you know tours and lectures and, and guest appearances and stuff. Let's talk about him. Let's talk about Old Cameron and let's talk about Old Cameron in this movie in particular. It's his first major role. Yes, and instantly. He's not a bit part actor. He's lead in this, along with Bonacoliano. There's no way you can say that Bonacoliano is the star of this. Earl Cameron has got equal billing, as far as I'm concerned, and has the more interesting story. I would say so as well. There's more dimension to um, his story. Yeah. And I think it's. I think I'm right in saying that this has been credited with um, being the first major. Um, British film that has actually tackled interracial relationship. It is, yeah. or, 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 or the potential for an interracial relationship. Yeah. And um, although you don't actually see, you know, you don't actually see anything depicted. In fact, it's the absence which is the essence of this of that story, that plot line. Yeah, is the abs if the absence of them being able to have a relationship, and you can see the both the both parts of, of that couple acting out that plot line. Um, do it so incredibly well that the you really do feel the absence, um, yeah. and he he puts that across incredibly well. And as you say, for this being a really a, a first major role for somebody, but um, the the tackling of the issue was, you know, almost they they tried to have it as a subplot, but it, in some ways this is that's kind of the main plot of it, yeah. and the rest the rest is around it. Like you say, he's he's almost the lead. Um, and the rest of it is is to just support um, around that storyline, almost around that storyline, yeah, yeah. And I think what Basil Dearden is very, very clever here because you obviously know that that couple are falling in love, but there's no physical contact. There's not even a peck on the cheek, or even dance. No. I don't think they even dance, do they? In the That's dance, absolutely, or, yeah. Um, no, not even a, ha- a, a you know a brushing of the hand or, or anything, pushing, yeah. yeah. And and Basil Dearden is fully aware of the taboos at the time, but he still manages with Earl Cameron's performance a believable scenario that you know these two are falling for each other, but all they've been doing is talking. It's incredible. Yeah. It's incredible the way that comes across. And as I say, it's not just Basil Dearden's direction, it's Earl Cameron's performance that yeah. highlights that superbly. But also the rest is, is issue is also 
how the Bonacolano character um, treats him as an equal, even yes. though some other people might make comments, and he's he, and he's not go, he's not making a thing out of the fact that he's treating him as an equal. He just is treating him like an equal yeah. to the extent where he could, with the with his own plot point and in, in trajectory, he could have abandoned him, but he actually um, doesn't. And yeah. happily, the the way that plays out, I think was 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 done as I'd want it to be. He defends but him on a couple it, of times. Yeah, he defends him, and then at a certain point, he um, he is cruel to him um, in order to push him away. Yeah. But then there's, there is a kind of a reconciliation of, of sorts that there's an understanding of why that was done, but um, between the two of them at a distance. Um, but that's, um, you know, that is played out as well, that, you know, the he's surrounded, you see the racism... Um, elsewhere with him appearing. Oh treatment. yeah, yeah. But, but you can see how he's he's treated by those that don't have that. And you, I've got to I've got to imagine that Basil Dearden himself was consciously wanting to um, address issues of of race and such like. That's why it is something that that crops up. It's almost it's treated as an aside a lot of the time. Yes. In in it, it's not it's not pushed as being that this is a, a film about race, and none of his films really are in that way. It's, it's there's a there's another story there, mm-hmm. but he takes the opportunity to sort of chip away at it across a number of films, and I've got to imagine that it was something he consciously did. Yeah. Um, which you know again makes me want to be um, more favourable in my opinion of, of him as well as his talent as of course. what he's doing. Yeah. But yeah, absolutely, the performances um, and the way the plot actually plays out, along you know, along with the other plot points that are going on simultaneously, I think is what you know helps make this film stand out from some of the other films that were around at the same time. Really, he'll revisit. The subject of race and certain taboos in sapphires, which we're going to cover. Absolutely, and that's yeah. that's about eight years down the line. That's the end of the fifties. Sapphire, I think, it was nineteen fifty nine. And Earl Cameron again. And Earl Cameron um, again. Yeah. In, in that, but um, and that's more that's more um, obvious. Is the oh, race element yes. in that? But there's in between. Then I think he touches upon it, Basil did, and to to just nudge it, mm. but again without it it being. The, the focal point really of, of the film it wouldn't be what was the what the film was sold upon it, it's it's cre- it's a sort of a creeping um nudge at people to actually think about it without it being in the face and that can be only only be applauded but the, the performances and the way that these are shot as well the lingering looks as the the bus is is pulling away and she's sort of um looking at him and and the the absence of the physical contact, as we've said, as you know, mm. before the bus pulls away and the yearning look and stuff, it just it it, it tells you more than words or or, or actions um, could actually or, do. Or, yeah, or, yeah. yeah. Um, and that you know really strikes strikes home. It's great because his performance in this, you know, he goes from I don't know, he goes from shipmate to would be potential Romeo to drunken street fighter almost at the end you know and there's just this whole range in this under 90 minutes and he he's on screen i think a lot more than probably bonacoliano is he definitely deserves equal billing which is what he gets and in fact i think this is probably a better performance than he gives in sapphire as much as i yeah. like him in sapphire i'm, I'm, I'm pretty yeah. sure this yeah is i say so yeah yeah 
Fantastic. Earl Cameron. Should be Sir Earl Cameron. I mean, I know he got an MBE or something recently, but yeah, let's let's not forget that man. He's 102 years old, still with us, still actively performing and promoting the British film industry. We salute you, sir. Fantastic. Absolutely. Right. Let's talk about some of the others. Let's talk about the plot. So it basically revolves around the sailors on shore leave. Bonacoliano does a little bit of dodgy dealing in nylons and cigarettes and I'm assuming marijuana as well because he has a packet of cigarettes that he said is not quite cigarettes or something, doesn't he? Yeah. And the game... Well, they've come, from, they've come from, from the Netherlands, haven't they? There that was where their point of call before yeah, coming into London. So, you, yeah. you know. So we know he's, he's not averse to a little bit of a dodgy deal here and there and... The game gets stepped up a notch where he gets involved in basically he thinks he's just a fence almost. He's going to be transporting some something, doesn't know what it is, from London to Rotterdam. Yeah. And it turns out there's this jewel heist with Alfie Bass as one of the gang men. Uh, it's an inside job. This Well, is it an inside job because there's this guy who's the acrobat? Yes, the, that, that that is a bit of a don't know how quite to to, to think of that mm. um, plot point because w- was it a, an attempt to lift it beyond just being a, a simple heist that maybe they didn't want to spend a lot of time putting in detail to how the heist could happen? Yeah. They had to make it that it wasn't something easy for them to do that somebody could just walk in and do as far as a robbery. Yeah. But they, they also didn't want to spend a lot of time showing planning and detail because there was other over time they wanted on screen for other things um, which we've previously discussed so maybe the the acrobat element was a way of, of getting a quick fix on how there was um, the robbery wasn't something that it wasn't a smash and grab it, was, it wasn't yeah. something that they could every day it wasn't a smash and grab yeah. um, there was you know there was more to it but without there being um, more embellishment on screen of, of the planning of the actual robbery yeah. Um, but it, yeah, it was a bit of a, and then the, the, the point with the, the, um, the acrobat and, um, his brother, that was a little bit of a, I was not really sure what, what that was there for really, yeah, but yeah, I suppose it was. a little bits like that. Yeah. But obviously the acrobat, as you say, was brought in to highlight the fact that he had to break into the building through a very specific route. And it was, that was great actually seeing the bomb damaged buildings outside you know obviously that's all probably been built up in skyscrapers now it was just to bring this element of excitement to what was a very good drama up to this point but then it brings in the fact that right we're going to have a break-in we're going to get the night watchman's going to get you know killed eventually he does die a car chase you know Basil did and suddenly brings in every element of every movie he could possibly think of and and there weren't toy cars this time they, they weren't because what was that in was that and um, that was in Blue Lamp was the Blue Lamp they were models weren't they yeah yeah <laughs> and at one point they, they dumped the car in the Thames yeah and you see it off screen and I'm thinking okay they haven't really dumped that car but then you see him pulling it out of the water about 10, 15 minutes later. So you think, oh, yeah, perhaps they did then. But you don't actually see him pushing you it Yeah, in. you don't see it sinking. No. Um, you see him would expect, it. But, um, Which is weird because the police arrive at the the, the slip um, into the river um, <laughs> and and have this idea that the, the, the car's gone 
gone under. Yeah. But it's not like to see the top of it disappearing no, in. There's no evidence. Um, so maybe they couldn't time themselves right. But um, <laughs> it's it's weird how the, the the fellas jump out the car. Yeah. And they they scramble up the beach a little bit, mm. and then they just then they just saunter. <laughs> and you're thinking you're still within sight of where where the, you jumped out the car. Are they... You just get over the over the cusp at least before you start sauntering. Well, are they um, thinking that the police are thinking that? Okay, the car's gone crashing into the river with them in it, and they've drowned. So they're thinking, okay, possibly, yeah. possibly, yeah. <laughs> but it's um, yeah, the the whole police um procedural like following up the the um the crime could have been the entirety of the film. Yeah, but the beauty of think of this film that lifts it separately is that it treats it does look into the um the element of what's what people's lives are like around that um and that being the focus rather than it just being about the crime drama side of it and i think that's that's one that um it means is why it's been picked by yourself to to be um part of the sequence of yeah. films we're talking about so but the the police the police procedural isn't without substance i mean it, it, they do actually cover how they're working out who's done the crime it's not like just they automatically know who it, who it is who's done the crime and they follow it up they are actually you do see them piecing together oh they, the actual, they pull in a um, few people know. don't they that's right yeah. the suspects are, are, are grabbed the the police procedural is is evident round about this time as well because blue lamp came out the year before basil dearden again and it's highly evident eight years later in Sapphire, the whole thing is a police procedural drama, Sapphire. Mm. But it's not dwelt upon here too much. The police are secondary characters, um, and the focus is on the people that committed the crime and the people associated with them. So you're looking at the girlfriends, the friends of the girlfriends. We don't get to know the coppers at all, whereas in other movies, round about this time, we do. They're not important. The important thing is the relationship between the people at the heart of this and the heart of the heart of the plot, which is the is the criminal activity, not the people chasing the criminals. I think in this particular yeah one. yeah in a in a different hands and a different focal point, this would have been done as a, um, a chief inspector of the yard following this up, mm. and it would be played by Alistair Sim, and there'd be <laughs> you know the, the, that would be the the, the focal point. Whereas yeah. this. It's not even the criminals necessarily who are the, the focal point, apart from Bonacoliano. Mm. It's 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 those that are that are the third parties that are impacted by the crime, yeah. um, rather than being the, the police themselves or the, the um, necessarily the the criminals that were first hand involved as such, although they you know they are shown that and their outcome is shown at least for one of them, which I think was again that was you know incredibly well shot the outcome for the acrobat this this is where this focal point is and i think it's a much better film for it i think i mean we've spoken about basil dearden at length here but as well as a great character study the cinematography on this stark black and white but we've got lots of shots of you know the wharves and the the dockside around this is the shad thames area of of, of london um, which has now become very gentrified and it's all sort of modern shops and things. But you can see there's nothing better in a black and white movie in the dark than a wet street, you know, reflection of light. And, and, and there's some quite long sort of distant shots where you see characters in the background and, and the focus of the shot seems to be the surroundings, the street, the tall buildings, the cobbled road. But then you'll see, 
you know, the characters walking towards the shadows or coming out of shadows. I'm not going to say it's a film noir because this is nothing like a film noir, but there's elements cinematically of, of that genre of movie. Yeah, I can understand why some people have mischaracterized it as a, a film noir because of the 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 lighting effects and, and as you say, and the, the shots. the crime as well. Uh, you know, and, yeah. um, but the, the tone of the film as far as what the focal point of the story and stuff isn't, as I say, if it had been done, them concentrating on the crime, then it could have been a, a film noir. But um, absolutely, the the way in which the cinematography is done in this, it does take full advantage of something that I know is particularly apparent to you. Oh, yes. is, tre- is treating treating London as a character, um, and that's what you know. Common thread through a lot of films, uh, British films, because London is very much the focal point for for that, and. There's so much to actually capture from that era, um, and this does capture what you know what London was like at the time around that area, rather than it just being a coincidence that it was set there. They're actually taking full advantage of showing what the reality was of of the place at the time. Yeah, um, which is beautiful to to see. It's fascinating for me because, as you know, my family are all dock workers in London. You know, for generation upon generation. That particular part of London by Tower Bridge, I'm really familiar with. For those that don't know, it's now where um, City Hall is. Up to about the 1980s, that was still a working dock. Literally just, you know, 100 yards down from where that ship was berthed is now where the Belfast is. So it's a major tourist attraction now, that whole stretch that on the opposite side of the river you've got the Tower of London. I'll tell you what fascinated me as well. I mean, we've said this before. I always like looking at things like old adverts and old shops and old cars and things and seeing how things progress. The thing that always gets me is when you get a movie from anything up to, say, about the 80s, how grimy and grotty the buildings were with the soot and the smoke and all the fog and all that sort of stuff. You look at Tower Bridge, it's black, whereas now, obviously, it's been sandblasted clean. The St Paul's Cathedral, you know, absolutely grotty, and and it just it just highlights just how serious the smog was as well, because it'd be a couple of years before the serious, you know, smog incident. Yeah, yeah, Clean Air Act, and Clean all that Air kind of Act, stuff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. But that's always part of it as well, because there was a point where they're at Greenwich, they're at the um, the Maritime Museum, and they're looking yeah. down, and you can see. It looked like a power station or some sort of factory with the four chimneys belching out the smoke. It's little things like that that <laughs> that always always sort of tickle me. It's like, oh my god, that's how the landscape has changed so much. Even things like you know when they hide the diamonds. Yeah. Well, they hide it in a tin of brilliantine. Now, where where <laughs> where was the last time anybody saw a tin of brilliantine? You know, stuff. Yeah, like and this and this is it. It's you know the the way in which showing these everyday items, and and allowing that snapshot to be to be taken is is essential. I mean that that cityscape view. Um, that could have quite easily not bothered doing any of that, but yeah. they chose chose specifically to do it and went out of the way to do it. And it's not in your face that they have done it, but it's just a, a, a nicer side for those that notice. Yeah. And it, it it is the you know the towers of smoke rather than the actual um, b- building 
as towers mm. um, because they, you know, skyscrapers weren't there at the time. Yep. Um, but there was the plumes of smoke going up, and that's the difference between then and now. The products of everyday life that were there with the um, different items that they're, they're consuming or, or alongside, it's, it's amazing. And, I mean, obviously there's a whole plot point around stockings, and cigarettes. <laughs> yeah. As far as him buying, yeah, Bonacoliano buying cigarettes rather than actually um, using any of the packets of cigarettes that he smuggled, you know, which is picked <laughs> up upon um, as just a curiosity, and it's it's showing you what what was going on without it being laboured. Well, I mean, for those that haven't seen the movie, it's it's billed as a crime drama, but I don't think that's an accurate description. I think it's more. It's definitely a drama. It's a great character study, certainly from Earl Cameron's point of view. And I think the the criminal bit does definitely play second fiddle throughout the whole movie. I just think that's the bit that just holds the characters together, and it's the characters that we are focusing on, or we should be focusing on throughout this film. The crime thing um, is really... It's almost just a MacGuffin mm. um, put in there to, to give some propulsion to the plot really and and bring us to the there could have been it could have been treated in different ways there could have been a, a number of other things that they could have done to bring us to the same conclusion point at the end that they have as the, the climactic scenes and it it wasn't really important what the the nature of that lead up to it was they, they managed to make the best of it and involve it it, it wasn't intrinsic because, as you say, the intrinsic part of this was about the actual character study of the people and the study of the everyday life at the time. Yeah, I think we're going to find that the more we dip our toes into Basil Dearden's work, that already in the in the two or three examples that we've already sort of come across, there's a lot more to him. I mean, League of Gentlemen is a crime caper. That's that's fair to say, and there were so many characters in that you couldn't really focus too much on any particular one. But as we know, because we've both seen Sapphire, I haven't seen Violent Playground, if I remember rightly. I'm sure it's Stanley Baker, so I'm assuming that's going to have a lot of character study in that around whatever the plot may be. And and as I say, the more the more we get to know Basil Dearden's work, I think the more we're going to enjoy it, and the more we're going to admire it, because I think he's a very clever. Very savvy director, and a little bit in advance of his time, I think. Very forward-thinking. Unfortunately, there are some people who, you know, when they die um, and they haven't had a full career, mm. even early death, um, unfortunately, there are some people who, in that situation, um, don't get the, the recognition their sort of work falls out of notice, or at least the appreciation of, of their um, involvement in the individual pieces of work there's not the connection that that's a body of work people might notice individual parts and there are some people who obviously you know an early death will actually propel them into greater stardom yeah. because suddenly they, they, they get a mystique about them and unfortunately i think battle did and is a bit forgotten now and we're trying to address that obviously yeah. in our, our own own way but absolutely i think even us the more we are experiencing of his work the more appreciation we're going to get and the more facets maybe we're going to see because I don't think he was in any way, you know, a one-trick pony. He had a, a number of elements to him. And seemingly, from my experience so far, he seems to have been excellent in each of the different ways in which he, you know, different aspects he was 
putting out there for us to experience. So mm-hmm. absolutely, I agree that he's going to be somebody we're going to grow in appreciation for. I think he's going to be, you know, the the unsung hero of this podcast. I like the fact that when we find somebody like this that we should have been aware of, we should have been more. We, we were both aware of Sapphire. I know that, but. I can imagine that when Basil did and died, I bet the only thing they ever said was the director of the League of Gentlemen. I bet that was the only thing that was ever highlighted. And now, thankfully, with the BFI re-releasing things like Sapphire and Pool of London in these great sort of restored versions now, these high-definition 4K, whatever they may be, people are getting the chance to reevaluate and appreciate an almost forgotten little bit of British cinema you know we remember the Powell and Pressburgers we remember the kitchen sink stuff but then there's this 10 year window that we're dipping our toes into now that's got so much in it absolutely it's almost it almost deserves notice in, in its in its own way and I'm mm. very glad that you have, have drawn my stronger attention to it although I, I kind of knew there were credible films in that, oh, yeah. that window yeah. I didn't I didn't appreciate it until we started talking about it, however many several months ago, when we talked about it off air about the, you know, and then I went and had a bit more of a look based upon um, what you were telling me and went and realised how true it was that there's a lot of formative angles within cinema and, and mm. what would lead into other things in this in this sort of short period of time, this decade or so. Basil Dayton been, you know, been a, a focal point of that is is absolutely right. We can find a, a film that's directed by Basil Dayton with uh, Marianne Stone and Cyril Chamberlain, and that'll be the <laughs> that'll be the film that defines this podcast. So. Yes, that would be it. That was that was all it would take. Those three together. I bet there is one. I bet there is one. Pr- prime example of what you're sort of saying there was it always rains on Sunday. Underseen gem. Pretty much, yeah. and and everybody that I've spoke to since, or have commented on the Facebook group or whatever, have all said the same thing. What a bloody fantastic film! Why have we not heard of it before? And we've got a few more coming up. There were so many when I researched this. I said to you when I was going to do the whole kitchen sink dramas, I realised that I just couldn't do the ten kitchen sinks. I wanted to do what influenced them, and then what was about at the same time, and then what came after. And if I was to review with you every single movie, I think there was a list of about 97 or something that I wanted to consider, which has been whittled down now to about 24. Doesn't mean to say we won't go back and pick up some of those 97, because part of those 97 was Brighton Rock. The Blue Lab yeah. we've got to re-review again. But there's other stuff in there. There's the more obvious ones, you know, that we're going to touch upon, like Healthy and yeah. a couple of others. So... It's a long road. We've got another 22 to go. <laughs> um, I'd like to pick up the pace a little bit with it. As I say, as a sneak preview, the next one in the sequence will be Violent Playground, which again is Basil Dearden. There's, we're missing three or four in between, but we're going to discuss them in the documentary part of the show as well. And then it'll be Sapphire, and then we're getting closer and closer to Room at the Top and the John Osbournes and all that sort of stuff. They're, they're about three or four episodes away, so... Yeah, I mean, with this, you know, it's nice to, to have a look at... Boys in Brown has got a certain element of, of the same um, element as, as petty crime and yeah. the, the treatment of... And um, the Good Time Girl has got the element as well as how they're um, 
somebody getting drawn into a whirlpool of, of escalating criminality yep. um, and things. But I think that this is one that you've picked has been a film that that brought together those elements in a, a singular film and done to such such a plum really um, is is why this one was the right choice in oh, in my so. opinion. So yeah. you know, well done on you. Thank you. I think so. It's it's just it was trying to to get a progression from one movie to the next and trying to find a typical example of what I'm trying to say. And that'll be highlighted again next time round with Island Playground. So let's see how we go. For me, I'm giving this four stars out of five. It's a very heavy four. Absolutely loved it. It's the second time I've seen it. First time I saw it was a long, long, long time ago. Um, And I'd completely forgotten it, if truth be told. So I watched this almost as a first-time watch. For me, it's just it's Earl Cameron's movie. That's the, the only thing I can say is... If you if you haven't seen it, you're in for a treat. Please please try and seek this out because you'll absolutely love it for yourself. Yeah, I mean, I imagine people who are particularly film fans um, would benefit from seeing a you know a BFI um, showing of this. Mm. But for for everybody else, I would say that give give it a go, look it out, and um, see how it sits with you because there's a number of elements to it to for it to appeal, and um, because of its its position. Within filmmaking, particularly British filmmaking, I think that there's there's entertainment to it. It's an entertaining film to watch, but there is the the, the social commentary um, as well as the talent that is exhibited oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, on screen and by the people making it. So it's it's a worthwhile film in in many respects. Very important film as well. Very yeah. important when you look back at what it was tackling in a very very clever way, as we've said. Okay, mate, let's take a short break and we'll be back with what we're watching next time. Okay, Stephen, so that was the second in our little look at Kitchen Sink, New Wave, Angry Young Man Influences. Be down to you for our next episode. What have you got in store for us, mate? Right. Well, I've decided to move us into um, somewhat more modern times, mm-hmm. um, but with certainly um, a venerable set of actors um, in the main parts of it. It's moving away from London to more rural island, really. So I'm picking from 1998. I'm picking a comedy, and it's called Waking Ned. I thought that's what it was going to be as soon as you said Venerable and Ireland, and yeah. I haven't seen it. Well, hopefully this will be um, one of the ones that you come back with saying, oh, I hadn't seen it, but I really enjoyed <laughs> it. I'm, I'm kicking myself for not having seen it before. Is this the oh. one with, I can't think of his name, but the guy that played Albert, the washer-upper in Robin's Nest, died a couple of years back? David Kelly. David Kelly, yes. I'm yeah. sure he's in this, isn't he? Yeah. He is, he's, yeah. Wasn't it called Waking Ned Divine as well, wasn't it? Yeah, thing? Waking Ned Divine was the title that it was It was given in some places where it was released, but um, yeah. the, it was also um, Waking Ned, depending on where you saw it. Okay. Um, and I take it you've seen this before? 
I have, yes, a long time ago. So, um, you know, I'm hoping it holds up to my memory that it actually is a credible film. Um, <laughs> if not, we'll be um, we'll be certainly having the joy of of saying why it's not ripping it apart. But you haven't let us yeah. down. You haven't let us down so far, mate. So we should be okay. Waking Ned will be our next movie. Um, and as we said at the top of the show, who knows when that one will go? Out? I mean, we're recording at the beginning of October. It could be about Easter time before we actually see the light of day. So. Yes, the next one will be a Valentine's film. Um, <laughs> Once again, fantastic sitting here for the last hour or so chatting with you, mate, talking about a movie that should be talked about a little bit more, I think. It's very important, and it's certainly very enjoyable. Absolutely. This is one that needed more attention drawn to it, so I'm glad we've been able to, to do that in our own small way, and I'm yeah. very glad that um, I got round to watching it Finally, thanks to you, because it's something that um, I've missed out on for far too long. Cool. Okay. Let's leave it at that. We'll be back next time. Stephen, thank you very much, sir. See you soon. My pleasure. Take care. Ta-da. Absolute shah. A positive shah. Bon voyage. Good luck. Thank you. Hand up, sir.